My guest today on VC Land is Benjamin Chong from RightClick Capital. Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Justin. Okay, let's get into it. Tell us about RightClick Capital. RightClick Capital is a venture capital firm that invests in and champions Australia and New Zealand's bold and visionary tech founders. We like to back early stage founders, their teams, as we hope they accelerate their growth and success. And we obviously give them capital, but beyond that, we like to share some of our know-how and the the, the lessons that we've learned from being in business along with the network that we've been able to cultivate having been in business for over 20 years. So when did RightClick Capital actually begin? RightClick started in 2003 originally as a vehicle for one of my good and long-term business partners, Ari Klinger and I, to invest in businesses that we initially started and then to invest in other really cool founders. We started then investing out of our first fund in 2013 called the Sydney Seed Fund. At that time, Mm -hmm. we had another investor, Gary Vasante, who joined as a partner. And then more recently in 2017, we've been investing out of our second fund called the RightClick Capital Fund. Okay, so it's a small team, what, the three, three or four? Yes, yeah, so we have a team of three partners at the moment, Ari, Gary and I, and we have a team of other investment professionals who work closely with us. And if you're in touch with RightClick, you'll either hear from one of the three of us or Joanna or, or Ulrich or Curtis, who are also key members of our team as we spend time talking to founders and try to assist them as they go on their founding journey. How are you finding things at the moment? We'll get into the details of how the fund operates and how you invest. But right at the moment, in the middle of coronavirus and and COVID-19, what are market conditions like for VCs? We've been spending our time across two major parts of activity. The first is looking after our current portfolio companies. So at the moment, we have in our current fund over 20 portfolio companies. So we've been spending time checking in with the founders, seeing how we can be of assistance, sharing information that we've heard in the market and helping them to ensure their business is resilient for the future. The other part of activities that we do is screening spending time talking to founders and screening potential investments that we might make. And that has often involved helping founders and talking through what are the impacts of COVID and the current situation on their business. Can you walk us through the process of how your um, your firm, RightClick Capital, assesses a deal and the suitability of a deal for you. And obviously that's going to be different for everyone, but what what is the methodology that you guys go through? Sure. We often found or find the relationships that we have with with, with founders start start even before they might come up with their their business. So we're happy to form relationships with founders very early on in their journey as they take their very, very first steps. As we learn more about the founders and their vision and their plans, quite often they'll ask us 
may we have some money or when do you think is a good time <laughs> Please. <laughs> to, to, to raise money? And it's very much a collaborative conversation that we engage with, with, with those founders, trying to work out what are the proof points that might be necessary for them to achieve in order to perhaps attract money like us. And we invest at a pre-seed and a seed stage and beyond. So if it is, say, a pre-seed, check, well, what are the types of milestones or things that we ought to see or other investors would be interested in seeing. And we, we had that conversation with those founders. When it comes to assessing when it is right for us to invest, I'd say there are three big things that we look at. The first thing is the quality of the team. We want a high quality team. The second thing that we look at is the market or the opportunity that they're chasing. So we generally want the market or the opportunity to be a large market if you're going after a small market, mm. we're less excited about such things. And then the third thing would be around the traction or some of the some of the milestones that have been achieved to date. So that doesn't necessarily mean there needs to be a full-blown product. But if, for instance, the founders have been able to go and secure pilots after they have built the product, that does suggest there are potential customers for them. It does suggest that there is interest in their product. So there, mm. are, there are ways that I think founders can consider what are those milestones and the, the milestones will vary based on the, the size or the stage of the, the, the startup. Now, when it comes to the team, we like teams that have a combination of commercial expertise, of technical expertise and domain expertise. So let's say we were going to be investing in a company or assessing a company that was in the world of, let's say, computer electronics or consumer electronics. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. no one there is an engineer, <laughs> an electronics engineer, Alarm I would be, bells. yeah, yeah, I, I would be, oh, that's interesting. And similarly, if you were going to be assessing a, a company that was in the world of, say, insurance sales, maybe it's insurance sales online, and there was no one on the team with insurance experience, or there was no one on the team who had an experience commercially, they were all, say, technical individuals, then that would also be a, a potential alarm bell. Hmm. So what are some of the businesses that you've actually invested in? Give us a flavour of what that... What, what, Give us a flavour of what segments they're in and, and how they've done. Sure. We are quite agnostic in our investments. We like to say that we're happy to back founders very early on in their journey. And although we are into technology, technology can mean a lot of things. So mm. we have broadly categorised our investments into either software businesses or IoT businesses, so the idea that the world is going to become more and more connected with devices. And then the third category that we like focusing our efforts on are what we would call deep technology businesses. So these are mm. startups that have spawned from a university, maybe they've come out of a research lab or some type of institute. So they're the, they're the three categories, and I'll give you an example of each. So on the software side, one of the businesses that we're proud to have backed is called HotDoc. They are a software as a service company and they 
provide this software as a service to medical practitioners and mm. medical centers. Very familiar with that company. <laughs> I think a lot of Australians have been making use yeah. of them in recent well, they're the, time. They're the, they're the market leader or certainly in the, in the GP market. Indeed. And they allow for these practices to have much better communications with their customers or their, their patients. And instead of the old days when you and I would rock up to the doctor's clinic and have to wait in turn, <laughs> sometimes mm, in a room yes. with other people who are coughing yes. and sniffling, <laughs> yeah. we're yeah. able to book online. We're able to get a notification as to when we need to present ourselves at the clinic. And as soon as we go there, because they've got all our details online, they're able to make the charge on Medicare or if there is a top-up payment automatically. So it is a type of workflow or system that interleaves with the practice management system a clinic may have, and it makes the experience for the practitioner easier, and most importantly, it makes the experience for the, the, the patient, the, 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 the people like you and I, much easier. So that's a software business, and that's been growing. Yeah. And, mm. and, and, and the, way, the, the way they charge is per, per, per GP who is on, on, on the platform and the, the number of bookings that they have. So that's something that's in the software category. In the IoT category, as I mentioned before, we believe that over the next 10 plus years, there will be more and more connected devices. And mm. that's why we've invested in an Australian company that is launching low Earth orbit satellites. So these are satellites the size of maybe two or three shoeboxes. They're nano satellites. They mm. launch them into what's called the low Earth orbit. So you can't, they're probably too small for you to see if you look up in the sky, but they are orbiting the, the, the Earth and they provide connectivity to devices that could be far, far away from the mobile telephone network. So imagine you're a farmer, you've got a water pump in the middle of nowhere. That water pump is really important. And previously, you would have to send a technician to check that water pump perhaps once a month or once a quarter to ensure that it's not on the blink. Because if the water mm. pump goes under, you might have cattle, you might have crops, you might have issues with your, with, 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 with your, with your produce or livestock. So instead of now you sending this technician out there once a month or once a quarter, you can have a sensor who can report to this Miriota satellite on a daily basis and you then only need to go and service it when you get a signal that perhaps the water capacity is decreasing or it gives you a fault code. So if you think of that as an example and you consider other examples, whether they're shipping containers that are on a ship in a vast ocean and you want to monitor what is perhaps the temperature of your cargo in that shipping container, or you might have another asset that is far, far away from the mobile telephone network, you're able to get these monitored for cents per day. Mm. <laughs> and when you do the maths, well, doesn't that sound fantastic? for less than $10 a year to be able to monitor something when ordinarily you might need to get a technician to go out there every month or every two months for a 100 or 200 kilometre round trip. I think that's an enormous saving. And you think of the security that can be improved upon, you can think of the efficiency that can occur. And we expect for there to be many millions of devices that be 
that can that can be connected to this. And then the third thing I've mentioned before about deep technology. Some of the cybersecurity companies that we've invested in have spawned from these laboratories where they've been investigating the threats of cybersecurity on computer systems mm-hmm. and what our... Very uh, topical at the moment. Yes, I know. What, what our portfolio companies have been doing is, is, is working hard with not only the law enforcement agencies, but large corporations to ensure that their assets are secured. So you think about any large organisation, maybe they're in charge of a a utility, (laughs) maybe they're Mm. in charge of some kind of government system. We all want to make sure that they are safe and that they are not vulnerable to attacks from what some people might call bad actors. And we believe that cybersecurity is something that, everyone needs to be vigilant about and i suspect in future there is going to be more expenditure on that and we want to back founders who are building companies that are protecting not only the assets of of, of our country but protecting the assets of other friendly countries how many deals would you typically as a firm look at say over a month or over a year. I'm, I'm sure your inbox is flooded with <laughs> opportunities and it must be hard to, to go through them. But give us a sense of the scale of opportunities that you know, the good, the bad, the indifferent, the ugly that come your way. Yes, that's a very good question. Over the course of a year, we would see north of 1,500 deals. So that's more than 100 a month, and they come in all shapes and sizes. So some of these deals are for companies that are outside of our our, our, our mandate. So some of them mm-hmm. might be from countries that are not Australia, New Zealand, or Southeast Asia. Other of these companies will be non-technology businesses. So we can't mm-hmm. invest in them because we're experts or specialists in technology companies. So if someone wants us to invest in a in a, a garment manufacturing factory, it's probably not us. And of the 1,500 plus, we would make investments in between five and 10 a year. New wow. investments, that yep. is. Yep. So in our existing portfolio, we're always making what we call follow-on investments. Yes. So that's where we... How does that work? So let's say we invested in a company last year. It's been growing. It's been taking on new customers, but they want to expand even faster. They'll come to us and say could we have a bit more money? And of course, we'll have the conversation, work out how much money they need. And if it all makes sense, provide them with additional money, what we would call a a follow-on check. And sometimes Mm -hmm. we'll be the only investor in that. Other times we will invite other VCs or other investors to come and join the, the party. So when it comes to the deals, we, as I said, see north of the 1500, we will receive these deals from a variety of sources. Some will be direct to us, just to our info at rightclickcapital.com email address. Other times it'll be to our personal emails. I'd say that the the best quality deals that we receive are those that are through a referral. So if Justin, yes. you were to send something to me and say, hey, here's a former colleague I've been working with or you know, that, I, that I used to work with, 
She's been working on something really cool. By the way, on her team, she's got great commercial domain and technical expertise. Ben, I think you should have a good look at this. They tend to be, if you like, the warmer or the more opportune yes. deals, the, 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 the somewhat screened deals. And then the, the, the process is we, we, we go through pretty much every deal that hits our, hits our desk or our inbox. We, we'll go through. If it's a fit, we'll, we'll, we'll have a good look at the deck. Usually the founders will send us a, a short five or ten page PDF information deck. And yes. then if it makes sense, we'll go and ask some questions and possibly have a call. And then in the good old days, we'd meet with them in person. And, and these days, <laughs> we, we spend a lot of our time training our eyes on that little dot yeah, above, the Zoom. Yeah, yes. above the screen. <laughs> so does it need to be a unanimous decision for sign-off? With the investment team, we we make decisions by consensus. So we do okay. like to, to 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 get the whole team on board. When we make a decision, we are always aware that there are some decisions which are, if you like, hopeful. <laughs> In that we're 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 hopeful that 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 things will work out, but we we, we break this up into to different sorts of risks. So sometimes there will be technical risk. Is there going to be a risk around the technology being commercialised? Will they will the team be able to get that 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 technology commercialised, or are there a bunch of leaps that need to occur there? Other times we're taking what would call market risk, and that is mm. will the market grow large enough in order to buy this product. So let's say you had a product that's called an electric car. Will there be enough market demand within five, 10 years for the purchase of these electric cars? And obviously that's related to a whole bunch of other factors such as the price of lithium, the price of, of, of production, the cost of getting uh, electric charging infrastructure in, the, in the, the geographies that the car is being sold. And of course, are there any government rebates or incentives to move people off the petrol powered cars over to electric powered cars? So they're the types of things that go through my, our mind. Is there a technical risk? Is there a market risk? Is there a execution risk? That yes. the, the 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 team's going to to have to contend against, and I think as much as we often talk about strategy, the 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 important thing is 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 execution. Some people are very good at talking, <laughs> and if the, <laughs> if, if the doing can match the talking, fantastic. The nature of the beast would suggest that you're not always going to get it right. I mean, the the law of averages. Um, being what it is, um, would suggest that you're going to have a couple of absolute standouts and a few that, that, that flame out and then a big chunk in the middle that are doing okay. Without uh, naming names, have you, have you had any investments where you thought, mm, that didn't quite go as we planned? Yeah, and I think that it didn't go quite as well as we planned has, has been sometimes when the glass has been half full as well as half empty. So mm. there have been investments in the past where I think in the early days, we go into it with a high degree of conviction, a high degree of hope, and the hope's based on us running the numbers and doing the analysis. But there are the external factors that 
come into play. And what I'd say is that in those early days, it's hard to know. So there have been examples of companies where they had a, a trying time. I'll give you an example. One of the companies we invested through the Sydney Seed Fund back in 2014, 2015, was called Trademark Vision. They mm-hmm. came out of uh, Institute in Brisbane where they had computer vision technology. So this technology was software that was able to recognise images in the same way the police these days have the software to recognise the number plates. Oh, the number plates, yeah. yeah. So, you yeah. haven't paid your rego. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why we don't need to put those those those, mm. those decals or the stickers yeah. on, on the on the windshield anymore. The, the police can work it out straight away. Well, what this company came up with was uh, software that was able to recognise logos, logo types. So whether it's the Coca-Cola logo, the Nike swoosh, or any other logo such as the McDonald's arches. And in the early days, we weren't really sure where their revenue was going to come from. Of course, we had ideas. We thought their revenue might come from lawyers who would be monitoring people who are infringing on a corporation's trademark, because that's a bad thing if you and I have registered the golden arches and someone else is making use of the golden arches well that's not really cool so we thought maybe they're going to make money by selling this software to to lawyers as it happened they found their customers in the form of the intellectual property offices of countries so in Australia, we have the IP Australia, which is our intellectual mm-hmm. property yes. office. Yep. Over in the European Union, they've got the EU intellectual property office and different countries like the United States of the USPTO, the Patents and Trademarks Office. What they found is that they could sell their software at a good sum to these IP offices, which were run by governments around the world. And the take-up rate was phenomenal. And in the early days, we didn't know whether the government departments would buy this software. Okay. They did eventually, and so much so that this company was acquired by a a partner of theirs, a partner who had been selling a lot of their product and thought, hmm, a little bit like the the, the Remington, I think, man. (laughs) I liked it so much, I want to buy the company. So, so, so they bought the company and it was a tremendous return for our investors, many, many times multiple for our investors. And I think that goes to show that in the early days, if you are not totally sure about how you might get it to market, if you do have a good team and you have a good product, your chance of being able to make a return is high. And I think for us in those early days, we were very much convinced that this was a strong team, their technology was superior. If they couldn't get the lawyers to pay, we were confident that they'd be able to find someone else to pay for their product. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on um, early stage businesses typically that you would invest in, uh, in the race to either try to make profit versus say growing quickly and, and scaling quickly? I think a lot of VCs have copped flack for the encouragements that we have made to 
companies to grow quickly. And I still stand by the encouragements that we give to the companies in our portfolio to grow quickly. But what I'd say is two things. Firstly, before a whole chunk of money gets spent on growing quickly, the startup needs to ensure they have a level of product market fit. Or in other words, they have been building a product or a service where there are enough customers who will pay for it. That's, I think, mm. the important thing. Because mm. if you and I, say, started a, a cafe and we're giving out free coffee, well, I'm sure we'll have a very long line outside our cafe. But if we were to, <laughs> if we were to charge, charge money for it, well, then people might be questioning or people will be tasting our coffee a bit a bit closer, I would suspect. Yes, and, and, yes. And if it doesn't taste great, then they'd be questioning, why am I handing over a couple of coins for, for, for this coffee when I could possibly get, get better coffee down the road? So getting that product market fit is really important, and that is finding people who are prepared to pay for what you do. I think that's super critical. Then I think the next thing, Justin, is understanding what the unit economics are. And by that, I mean, if, let's say, it costs us $2 to market to the community to get people in to buy our coffee, and then it costs us a dollar to make our coffee because we use the finest beans, we have the best machine, we have the creamiest milk. So our cost there is $3. Well, how much are we selling the coffee for? If we're only selling the coffee for $3, well, we're not making enough to even pay ourselves a bit of wages, let alone the rent. Maybe if we sell it for $4, there's a, a dollar worth of margin there that we're able to pay a bit of rent and pay some of wages. And I think trying to understand the unit economics to ensure that they stack up is critical. So one of the things that we advise startup founders around is you should only begin your scaling exercise if you have a level of confidence that your cost of customer acquisition is less than the lifetime value of the customer. <laughs> so mm. if we spent this $2 to get the customer in to buy our coffee and we only sold the coffee for $3 and we know that the first coffee we sold had a cost price of a dollar for the beans and the milk and the other ingredients, well, that might be okay if we know that that customer drinks the coffee and thinks, gee, Justin, Ben, that's the best coffee you've uh, I've ever tasted. I'm going to keep I'm coming. buying 10 a day. Yeah, I'm buying 10 a day. Well, that's cool, right? Because the next time that customer comes back, we don't need to pay the $2 to, 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 to market to her because she's already mm. been convinced that it's the best coffee she's drunk, so she'll keep coming back, in which case that's cool. But <laughs> if it's not the best coffee she's drunk or she, she, she only buys coffee once a month or once a year, well, we have a problem. And these are the types of details that I think are really important because my view is that if, if the market dynamic is such that there is a, a land grab on and there is virtue in, in grabbing that land because you can build a relationship with that customer, and we're talking about this lifetime value, well, it makes sense to grab as much of that land as possible and to ensure that you 
provide a great service, a great product to that customer, and hopefully they're with you for a very long time. Because if they're satisfied by the coffee that you and I make, why would they go to the barista next door? Even if mm. that barista is offering the coffee for two fifty, like the three dollar coffee that we offer is the is, is, is sublime. Why, why, why would I even think about a, a, another coffee? <laughs> <laughs> so what about, what about the view of um, put your investor hat on here? Mm-hmm. Any of your companies? Um, that you're tracking closely um, to either stay private, uh, go public on an exchange somewhere, or perhaps have a liquidity event in um, a trade sale? I think they're all interesting options. For a lot of the companies that we've invested in, they have stayed private and they remain private because we tend to invest in a relatively early stage and it takes a good five, six, seven years for these companies to get to a level of scale. As for going public, there are sometimes really good reasons to go public. One of the great reasons is the ability to access the capital markets. And even recently, there have been a number of these companies that have raised a chunkload of capital from investors. And that's what the public markets allow. I think when it comes to trade sales, the trade sale exit is a pretty common exit for venture-backed companies. And what has been happening over the last 15 years is that venture-backed companies have been staying private for longer. But when they have gone public, and think of the the, the large, large American companies like an Uber, an Uber stayed private for a very long time before listing on the on the exchange. So I don't think there is a one size fits all for every company. It's very important for a company, if it's continuing to grow, to consider what are the best options for for capital. Because if it is going to keep growing, it's likely to need capital. And sometimes that capital can be better found from private investors like us, but other times it can be better found by going to the public markets and raising money through an IPO or once it's already listed additional issues. So what's your advice then to say startup founders, and let's look at Australia as an example, you might have a concept, you're, you're getting going and you're thinking about tapping into some VC money. What's your advice to, to those entrepreneurs? My advice is ensure that you develop some proof points. If you're able to demonstrate that the early proof points are a good signal that you are chasing a large market, and that you might go beyond Australia in, in, in coming time, and that you have also a great team, then get in touch with investors like us. And we're happy to engage very early on in the conversation, even if it's a form of heads up. Hey, I want to let you know I've been working on this and hopeful to to stay in touch and give you updates on what I've been doing. I think the earlier you can build that relationship, perhaps get some feedback, the better your chances are of raising that capital because hopefully you'll have been on the radar, you'll have been able to hopefully put in some of the 
advice or feedback into in, in, into your into your planning and into your doing. And then I think the other thing is you'll be able to to also demonstrate the progress that you've made over time. I'd also suggest as founders to to meet up with other founders where you can. Obviously, in these times, it's more likely to be online or over the phone, but meeting up with founders and learning stories of what has and hasn't worked is really important. And I do think, Justin, there can sometimes even be more benefit in learning from people's failures, (laughs) what did not work out, than sometimes learning from their successes. So I would encourage founders to, 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 to read up and to, to, to speak and network to get this information and to understand how best they can apply it to their circumstance. Final question for you, Ben. What do you think is the difference between the VC market, say, in Australia as opposed to overseas? And specifically, let's, let's look at North America, the United States. It's a much smaller market here. So what has been wonderful, Justin, over the last 10 years is the increase in the amount of funds in venture capital in Australia. So that's been the positive thing. There has been more money invested by super funds, by wealthy individuals into venture capital. That's wonderful. And that also means there have been more venture capital firms but it's still a far cry from what we see in the United States on a per capita basis. So what I would suggest is for founders to make friends with investors here, both VCs and angels, make friends with them, catch up with us at events online, in person, drop us emails and ensure that you're able to 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 have good conversations and elicit that feedback. And I think because we are a smaller market than the United States, there is probably a greater degree of collaboration that occurs because what we all want, Justin, is for the tide to rise. <laughs> when the tide rises, all the boats rise. And as investors, that's what we're excited about. Ben Chong, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today on VC Land from Right Click Capital. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Justin.